Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, be turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. Uh, so you can make your way there to the back room, and our volunteer leaders will be there to greet you and uh, bring you into class today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to be finishing up this chapter, so uh, we'll be focusing in on verses 8 through 13, but I want to back up a little bit into uh, part of the passage we covered from last week. So we'll skip back and begin in verse 6. So Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. So let me read our passage for us. And then I'll take a moment and pray for us and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. So Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my, law, my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Father, once more we are privileged to be able to gather together as your people under the truth of your word. And Father, we acknowledge and confess together this morning that, that this good gift to us, being able to come together and do this very thing, is a good gift bought by Jesus on the cross. If not for the righteous life, the sufficient death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would not be gathered here together this morning. And so, Father, uh, I pray that you would help us, that as you have promised, that, that uh, as we know that your Spirit dwells in us, and as you have promised that your Spirit would be at work in us through the truth of your Word to awaken us to the glories of Christ. And so, even as we meditate on the, the glorious, <clears throat> better promises of the new covenant this morning, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy uh, in what you have accomplished 
on our behalf. Fill our hearts uh, with joy uh, based on the reality of this covenant we are able to have with you, this relationship that you have established with us for all eternity. And I pray that it would change us this morning. Father, I pray that these words would convict us of sin and help us to pursue obedience to you. I pray that it would increase our confidence in the grace and mercy that you show us through the cross. I pray that we would leave here changed because of the truth of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning. Allow me to speak only what is true of you uh, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, my wife and I have been married for, uh, how, how many years is it? No, I'm just kidding. For 21 years now, a little over. And there are, uh, there are many great things about being married, but one that Lori and I often mention is we watch shows about relationships or we hear what's going on in other people's lives. One of the great things about marriage, not to rub it into those of you who are not, but is that you don't have to have those awkward dating conversations anymore, right? You know the ones I'm talking about where neither one of you quite know where things stand and one of you wants to talk about it, the other one you don't know if they want to talk about it, and it's that, you know, it's, it's that conversation, the, the DTR conversation, right? The defining the relationship conversation that you have to have. And you, often you have to have it at multiple points in the relationship. And, and you, you know, if, if you're the guy, you have sweaty palms, a flushed face, and you're having to have this awkward conversation. You don't really know what the other person is thinking. You hope they're thinking what you're thinking, but it can be really awkward if they're not thinking what you're thinking. And so you enter into this conversation. You have to be vulnerable and honest about what you feel the relationship should be like moving forward. And you, you need to have those, right? You, you, you have to have those because you need mutually agreed upon boundaries. Are you going to see other people? Are you going to date other people? Mutually agreed upon expectations, Right? And into that scenario, both individuals have a right to bring their own definitions. They, they bring their own boundaries. They bring their own expectations into that conversation. That sounds really romantic, doesn't it? But that's the reality of what it is, right? You're setting boundaries and expectations and all these, this awkwardness that happens as you seek to define the relationship. Well, in the Bible... God has these kinds of encounters with his people where he defines the relationship with his people. But of course, it's of a, a wholly other kind of conversation because it's not a two-sided conversation. It's not us coming to God and telling God, well, this is what we need you to be like. This is what we expect from you. No, it's a one-sided conversation. God defines his relationship with us. He tells us, what his expectations are for us. He tells us uh, what the boundaries of our relationship with him is going to be like. He, he comes to us in his infinite mercy and grace and offers us the opportunity to enter into a relationship with him. It's not something God has to do. It's not something he's required to do. It's something he does out of his own freedom and love for his people. Now, ultimately, this is a simplistic explanation of what a covenant is. God makes a covenant with his people. It's him defining the relationship that he wants his people to have with him. 
Of course, as I said, God is the sovereign creator of all things, and therefore he is the one who dictates the terms of the covenant. So for example, we see it very early on, right? At the beginning of creation, God creates the man and the woman there in Genesis 1 and 2. And there in the very beginning, he makes a covenant with them. He, he, he tells them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. He told them that he's given them the plants and the fruit-bearing trees for, for food. He's going he's gonna to care for them. And there in the midst of the garden, he said, look, I've, I've placed the tree of life. And if you eat from it, you can live forever. And we know that because later he says they could have lived forever but, but by having access to the tree of life. Right? He's poured out uh, blessings upon them. But he also added this one stipulation, right? Genesis chapter 3, uh, 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 sorry, 322 is what mentions about the, the tree of life, giving them the ability to live forever. But he, but he also there in the midst of the garden... And Genesis 2 tells them, look, there's going to be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one tree whose fruit I don't want you to eat. Don't eat it. All the other trees you can have. You have access to eternal life from the tree of life. I've poured out bounties upon you. I want you to enjoy this creation. You're going to get to have fellowship with me here in the garden together. But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, of course, if you know the story of the Bible in Genesis 3, they, in fact, do eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve takes the, the fruit and eats. And her husband, who was there with her, who is as much to blame as anyone, he also eats from the fruit of the tree. And they fail to uphold the terms of the covenant that God had made with them for them to have a healthy relationship. And so God pronounces curses upon them. Death comes upon them. They were removed from the garden and they were cut off from the tree of life. In fact, Genesis 3 says, we, we have to remove them lest they reach out their hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So there at the very beginning, you see God dictates the terms, and that continues throughout the Old Testament. He makes, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. He makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I want you to leave your land. I'm going to uh, bless you. You're going to have offspring who are going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And uh, later in Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness, and so God's going to keep the promise that he makes to Abraham. Later, God enters into covenant with his people in the Mosaic covenant when he brings them out of Egypt. And we're going to talk a lot more about that later as we get into the passage. But there he makes a covenant with his people. He gives them the law and says, look, if you obey this law, I'm going to bring blessings upon you. If you disobey this law, I'm going to bring curses upon you. God dictates the terms of the covenant to his people. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying to us this morning is that a better covenant has arrived than any of the previous covenants. A better covenant has come in Jesus Christ. And the reason the author of Hebrews wants us to see and to know this glorious gift of the new covenant is here in the original document, right? Here's, here's why the author of Hebrews wrote this letter 
to the Hebrew people. It's because they, these were uh, Jewish people who had come to Christ. They were now Christians, but they were being faced with temptations to go back to Judaism, to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to the sacrificial system, to go back to all of that. And he's pleading with them throughout the book of Hebrews, don't go back to that. Jesus is the answer. He's better than anything that you've had before. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Levitical priesthood. He is the great high priest for the order of Melchizedek, and he has now mediated, verse 6 says to us, a better covenant that is enacted on better promises. Why would you ever want to go back to the, the lesser covenant? And so the author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah. That's what we see here in verses 8 through 12. It is from Jeremiah chapter 31. And he's saying to the Hebrew people, he's saying, look, here's your scriptures. Here's the Old Testament scriptures. And even they themselves say that a better covenant's going to come. And he's saying to them, it has now arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the argument that's being made there in verse 7 and 8, right? Where he says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with that first covenant, with their interaction with that first covenant by declaring that another one, that another one would be coming. And so he pleads with them not to turn back because something greater is here in Jesus Christ. And that same new covenant is available to you and to me this morning. And so God wants us to meditate on the glorious reality of this new covenant that is mediated by Jesus, that is enacted on better promises. So the author of Hebrews provides an answer to a few key questions for us this morning. So here's the three questions that this passage is going to answer for us this morning. <clears throat> First, who belongs to the new covenant? Who gets to be a part of this? Who belongs to the new covenant? Second, what was the key failure of the old covenant? What was wrong with it, right? Why is it that a new one had to come in the first place? And then finally, Lord willing, where we will spend a good portion of our time comes with the third question. What are the better promises of the new covenant? What are these better promises? So who belongs to the new covenant? What was the failure of the old covenant? And three, what are the better promises of the new covenant? So let's try to answer, Lord willing, that first question. Who belongs to the new covenant? Look there with me at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he, said, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now this is significant because at the time that uh, Jeremiah would have been writing this, those kingdoms had been divided for a very long time. The house of Israel, the house of Judah had been apart for hundreds of years at this point. And in fact, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, had been in exile for over a hundred years when Jeremiah was writing these words here in Jeremiah 31. In fact, they're called the lost tribes of Israel. They're, they were exiled essentially to never be recovered again. And yet here is Jeremiah 
even in the Old Testament, saying, Behold, the days are coming when I'm going to establish this new covenant with, house, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, all of God's people together. But that should lead us to another question, or it should cause maybe a bit of confusion in our minds because I don't think any of us here are part physically descended from the house of Judah or the house of Israel. So how is this good news for you and me this morning? If this new covenant that the author of Hebrews is saying, he's going to establish this covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, the New Testament is clear to us that this new covenant that's mediated by Christ brings us into these covenant promises. So it says it directly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Listen to this passage. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so just pause there, Gentiles are those who are not Jews, who are not a part of the house of Israel or the house of Judah. These are people outside of uh, the, the physical descendants of what we would refer to God's people in the Old Testament. So, therefore, remember at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's you and I, Gentiles in the flesh, called the circumcision by what is called, uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here's the really good news for us this morning. What Ephesians chapter 2 says to us is that because of the death of Christ in our place, we're now part of these promises. That, that this good news that comes to Jeremiah applies to you and applies to me. It applies to everyone who trusts in Christ and has faith in him. So when we read about this new covenant, don't sweat that I may not be a part of it. If you are trusting in Christ, this is for you. We have been made one new man together because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. Therefore, through faith in Christ, we can have confidence that the good news of these better promises that we're going to meditate on are for us. So that's who it's for. It's for all who trust in Christ and through the death of Christ are made one new man and the wall of hostility has been, the dividing wall of hostilities has been broken down. So, so, so the, this good news belongs to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But now that brings us to the second question. What was the failure of the old covenant? And the reason this is important to think about is often we don't appreciate the greatness of something until we appreciate the failures of what came before it. So what was the failure of the old covenant. Look there with me at verse 9. 
So verse 8, he says he's going to establish a new covenant. Verse 9, he says it's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers. Verse 9, again, that covenant he made on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So verse 9 gives us a timestamp. It defines what covenant God is talking about because he says, look, this is, this is the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So there are multiple, as I mentioned before, covenants that God makes with his people in the Old Testament. There's uh, the covenant with Adam and Eve, the sometimes referred to as the Adamic covenant. There is the Noahic covenant. There is the Abrahamic covenant. And now we're being told this is in reference to the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant he made when he rescued them in a glorious way from Egypt, right? If you grew up in church, you heard these stories. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard these stories of, of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, bringing the 10 plagues upon the Egyptians, and eventually uh, rescuing his people from slavery there in Egypt, and uh, parting the Red Sea, bringing them across, causing the Red Sea to come crashing on Pharaoh's army as they come, came chasing after them, and he brings them out. And even as they are bellyaching and complaining the entire time, right, like a child that's constantly asking, are we almost there? What are you going to do? Can we just go? Whatever, right? that, that was the sinfulness of God's people. They're constantly complaining to God. You brought us out here and you've not provided anything for us. Where are we going to eat? Where are we going to get our food? Where are we going to get water? I'd rather be back in slavery again. And he's done all these miraculous things for them. And yet in spite of all of that, he comes to them and says, I want to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Which is what God does there at Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with his people. He graciously gives them his law. And says, look, I'll care for you if you obey this law. If you obey this law, you will live long in the land. Now, of course, as you probably also know, while he is making the covenant and giving them the law, they're down at the bottom of the mountain making an idol of gold, making a, the, the golden calf to fall down and worship instead of the one true God. That's the story of, unfortunately, Israel's history summarized in that one event. And so eventually they continue to complain. They continue to be rebellious. God continues to show mercy and grace to them. They're ready to be, in spite of all of these sins, he's ready to take them into the promised land to bring them there. But then they go, they spy it out, and they're, mm, I don't think we can take those people. We know that you miraculously brought all of those plagues on Egypt, but you probably can't do it again. And so they're, they're terrified of trying to go into the promised land to defeat these people. They show no faith in God, and so God condemns them to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years so that everyone 21 years or older who refused to go in and fight would die in the wilderness so that they could not enter the promised land. And when that 40-year wandering is over, in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, He's there, Moses, reminding God's people of the promises that God has made to them. He's reminding them of the covenant that God made with them. And this is what 
Moses, uh, God sends Moses to say to them, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Right? Hallelujah. Praise be to God. What a glorious promise God made to them. But Deuteronomy 30, 17 carries on and says, but if, but if your hearts turn away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And then just one chapter later, in case there's any question in your mind about what's going to happen when they get into the land, God says to Moses, Deuteronomy 31:16, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. He's telling Moses, your, your death is coming, it's imminently approaching. And he says this to Moses, then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And that is, in fact, what happens. Exactly what God, as we would expect, what he declares will come to pass is exactly what comes to pass. His people rebel, therefore they did not continue in God's covenant. The Old Testament is an ongoing story of God's people failing to live up to the, uh, the definition of the relationship that God gave them. They rebel time after time. And I, just, I don't mean that they just rebel in small ways. I mean, they run headlong the other direction from God. They pursue the false gods of other countries, of other nations around them. They build idols. They sacrifice in the high places. They end up sacrificing their own children on the altar at times. I mean, it is terrible and awful over and over and over and over again. You read the book of Judges, right? It is continual rebellion. God brings someone to save them, right? He raises up a judge to rescue them from the nation who comes to attack them, that God brings to punish them. They call out for help. God rescues them. They start living a life of ease. They start sinning again. God brings punishment upon them. The nation comes and wipes them out. They uh, say, okay, they see the error of their ways. They call out to God to come rescue them. He raises up a judge and comes and rescues them. Life gets easy. They start rebelling again. I mean, that is the story on repeat. You leave judges, you get into the kings. There are terror, uh, uh, wicked, terrible kings throughout that lead God's people astray. There are a few highlights that do well in the midst of it, but for the most part, it is terrible, ongoing rebellion of God's people against him. And so therefore, he takes them into exile. He comes in, takes the northern kingdom to Assyria, essentially wipes out the northern kingdom. Uh, over a hundred years later, the southern kingdom saw it happen, learned nothing from it. They continue to rebel. He brings the Babylonians in to wipe them out and take them into exile. Which is exactly what verse 9 is referring to when it says, 
they did not continue in my covenant, and I so, therefore, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, those are harsh words to hear God say. I showed no concern for them. Some translations render it, I showed no regard for them. No concern and no regard for his people. What God means is that he gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to the nations who would come and take them out. He gave them over to the Assyrians. He gave them over to the Babylonians. He didn't provide protection for them. He showed no concern and no regard for them as he forcibly had them removed from their land. Now God preserved a remnant because he had a promised seed he had to take care of so that he could one day bring the Messiah into the world. But for the most part... He abandoned them because, not because he broke his end of the deal, but because they broke theirs. They didn't keep the covenant. And so they were taken out of the land. They were punished and wrath came upon them. You see, this sin nature of humanity created this constant cycle of God's mercy, then deliverance, then man's rebellion. And that cycle, as I said, repeats itself over and over again. And the reason it repeats over and over again is because the external law can never change man's heart. The condition of humanity never changed. It was the same over and over and over and over again. But listen, the fact that there's a cycle at all is evidence of God's grace and mercy, right? The first cycle should have been it, right? He would have had every right to wipe out humanity. But mercy is shown, and mercy is shown, and mercy is shown over and over and over and over again. He provides chance after chance after chance for his people, but they just keep on rebelling. So how is the new covenant better? What is better about the new covenant. And that brings us to the third, final, and all-important question. What are the better promises of the new covenant? Look there with me at verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So what are these better promises? Let's just take them one at a time. First, he will write his laws in our minds and on our hearts. You see that there in verse 10? I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Listen, this is, this is glorious good news. This new covenant can do something that the old covenant could never do. It can reach inside us and change us. It can make us different. Right? Essentially, he is saying, I'm going to work within your heart and mind so that you can internalize the law, and I'm going to give you the desire to obey it. 
And it's, it's clear that we needed such an act of grace because of the track record of humanity and the track record of God's people was a continual abomination. As I said, it's not just they struggle with sins in small and minor ways. It's that they ran headlong the other direction away from God. They crafted idols with their own hands and then fell down and worshipped them. They were abusive and manipulative toward the poor among them. God calls them a stiff-necked people. That meaning they were so stiff and hardened they wouldn't even bow their necks in humble submission or obedience to God. They were a stiff-necked people. In fact, when Ezekiel speaks of the, new day, of the days of the new and better covenant, he, he says that God's people, Old Testament, had hearts of stone. Stiff-necked people with hearts of stone. That's, that's not good news. But listen to how Ezekiel describes the new covenant that God will bring Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is Ezekiel's way of saying the exact same thing that Jeremiah said that the author of Hebrews is quoting right here, that he's going to put the, the laws into to their minds and, and write them on their hearts. He's going to give them a heart, of sto- a heart of flesh. He's going to remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that is able to finally obey God's commands and laws. You see, the new covenant, in the new covenant, God goes to work on our minds in our hearts. He writes it in our minds. He gives us the ability to understand his laws and to desire obedience in our minds. And so much of our sin struggle is in our thought life, right, if we're being honest. And he, he's there ready to write the law into our minds. But it's not just that. I love that it also adds that he writes it on our hearts. He wants to change our affections, not just our minds. He wants us to want to obey him. He wants us to want to obey him. God doesn't want begrudging, sour people who think they're being robbed of joy because they have to obey God. I'm, you know, unfortunately, I think that's, that's one mistake that people sometimes make when sharing their testimony about their conversion to Christ, right? If they were converted older and maybe they had lived this kind of wild life and, you know, partied a lot, and they'll give their testimony and they talk about their former life as if it was this glorious experience that they had, right? They had all this fun. It was great and fantastic, but God saved them. And now life may not be as fun, but I'm going to heaven, right? It's kind of that kind of a thing. And look, if, if you've said something like that before, I'm not picking on you, but I'm just to say that, no, no, that, that story should go the exact opposite way. That that was a life of misery, of rebellion against God. And God rescued me. 
and he's given me a new heart, and now my heart is full of joy out of the privilege of being able to live for the glory of his name and obey the glorious good laws and rules that he has given us for our good and for his glory. See, that's what it means that God writes it on our hearts. He changes our affections. He wants us to be filled with joy as we pursue obedience to him. That's what 1 John 5, 3 means when it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Right? That's the good news of the new covenant. His commandments no longer feel like a burden we have to carry but a joy we get to live in. He writes it on our hearts. He wants us to obey him with joy. It's why 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God says to us, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. He wants us to obey out of joy. Or what does Psalm 1 say about the blessed man? What, what kind of man is the blessed man? It's the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Right? God, in his grace to us, through the new covenant, changes our hearts, gives us a desire to live for his glory, fills us with joy. And the main way he accomplishes that in us, this writing it on our minds and writing it on our hearts, is by sending the Spirit to dwell in us. John chapter 14, verse 15, and then verse 26, this is what Jesus says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, right? He's going to write it on our minds. The Spirit's going to be in us. He's going to help us remember what it is he has said to us. What are his commands? How does he expect us to live? This is glorious, good news. He has promised to give us, by his grace, the desire to obey him with joy and gladness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly. It's not what that means. You and I are going to struggle with sin to some degree until we see Jesus face to face. We're all going through a sanctification process. But by the power of the Spirit, he's working within us, sculpting us, shaping us, and molding us more and more into the likeness of Christ. I mean, this is what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That put to death is a present tense command. If by the Spirit you are continually putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, it means as long as you are pursuing Christ and striving to put them to death in your life, they're going to be around. You're going to have to fight against them. But by the power of the Spirit, you can continue to struggle against sin and pursue righteousness. It is by the good gift of the Holy Spirit living within us. And so that is one way in which this new covenant is better than the old covenant because the old covenant can never do anything about our hearts. But in the new covenant, Jesus has sent his Spirit to dwell within us and to change us, and to give us new desires and new thoughts for the glory of his name. 
So that's the first better promise. The second better promise is that we will belong to him eternally. You see there the second half of verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a promise of God without qualification. Do you hear how different that is than what uh, Moses said to his people in Deuteronomy 30 and 31? There he said, if you obey the commands, if you do this, then you will live long in the land. But if you don't, I'm going to tear you out of the land. No, here it says, look, if you're a part of this new covenant, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and that's the way it's going to be. And that is glorious good news for all who trust in Christ. If we trust in Christ, we are God's possession forevermore. Let me just give you a few biblical defenses or references for that. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Once we belong to Jesus, we are kept by him, and we are kept by the Father for all eternity, period, end of story. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Through Jesus Christ, you are now adopted children of God and eternal heirs of God himself. And the Spirit is at work in our hearts, allowing us to call out to our Father. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are his forever. And a little later in Romans is the most glorious build out of this reality. So I just want to turn there and just worship with you this morning. And read Romans 8, chapter 20, uh, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. Just, I know this is an extended reading, but let's just worship our Savior together this morning who has brought us into this new covenant and made us his people for all eternity. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and, uh, brothers. and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, uh, sorry, the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can't think of a better summary of what it means for us to be, uh, for him to be our God and for us to be his people. So if you're ever discouraged, if you're ever struggling, just open to Romans chapter 8. The Spirit is interceding for you. The Son is interceding for you. He is keeping you for all eternity, and nothing can separate you from Him. This is the glorious good news of the new covenant. There is no cycle. There is no letting us go. There is no sending us into exile anymore. We are His forever if we belong to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. He will be our God, and we shall be His people. The third promise there in verse 11, everyone in the kingdom will be able to know the Lord. Now, I'll just be fully honest with you guys. I don't fully understand verse 11 exactly what it means. I'll give you a few guiding principles that I think help get us there. But verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So there are two kind of boundaries I want to put on this to help us understand it. One, I don't think that Jeremiah or the author of Hebrews is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, right, where we achieve perfection. Because the whole point of what the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrew people is this is the good news right now. This new covenant has arrived in Jesus. It is here now. All these benefits that I'm talking about are for us right now. So this is not some eternal state of perfection, and yet at the very same time, I don't think verse 11 is saying that we don't need teachers anymore. If I thought verse 11 was saying that, I need to resign and walk out of the building right now, right? I don't think that's what verse 11 is saying. So what exactly is verse 11 getting at? So with those kind of two boundaries in place, let me give a sense of what I, I think verse 11 is talking about. I think what... God is saying to us is that those who come into the new covenant, into God's kingdom, through the death of Jesus, through, through faith in Christ, will have enduring faith and will have the privilege of knowing God. 
We all will have access to that. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter from the least to the greatest. There is no ranking system in God's kingdom. We will all equally have access to know God. There will be no ritual we have to go through to know him. There's no person we have to go through to know him. We can all know him. And last week we looked at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 as we, as we reflected on Christ interceding for us. And something that stood out in our life group that came up in my preparation for this week is John chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, And this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what does it mean to have eternal life? It means that we know God. We are able to know God. Yes, we can grow in our knowledge of God, his character, his purposes, his attributes. In fact, that's a necessary part of discipleship. It's why we gather every week that we may know more of God. But if you trust in Christ, you know him. Because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So it is a good gift of the new covenant that we can all know God. And then fourth and finally, this better promise is that God's, God's mercy is the foundation of the new covenant. God's mercy is the foundation of the new covenant. Look there in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 12 should humble us. The good and better gifts of the new covenant do not come to us because we are superior or better or more holy or more righteous than generations who have come before us. We are not better than God's people who were rebellious in the wilderness. Had we been there without the inner working of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, we would have joined them in bowing our knees to the golden calf. The new covenant is not because of something in us. It's because of what God has done in Christ. All these glorious promises are poured out in verses 10 and 11. And then the section concludes by saying, you're still going to be a people of iniquity. But I'm going to be merciful toward you. I'm going to show you grace. And ultimately, I will remember your sins no more. Well, how can a just God remember our sins no more and show us mercy? It is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is only because Jesus came and lived a righteous life in our place. We could not meet the demands of the old covenant, but they had to be met, and they were met in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is his righteous life that stands in our place. Because of our failure to live up to the demands of the old covenant, we justly deserve to suffer for all eternity in hell and have God's wrath and condemnation upon us. But because Christ died in our place on the cross and took the wrath in our place, we therefore can experience the new covenant and be forgiven and be shown mercy even when we fail him every day. 
This is the good news of the new covenant, that he will be merciful toward us, that, that our feet are set firmly, not on our actions, not on our righteousness, but on the mercy and grace of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. That makes it a new and better covenant. So praise be to God that verse 13 says that he has made the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And I would argue that it has already vanished away, that we are now experiencing the new covenant fully. We are living in it by God's mercy and grace to us through Jesus Christ. God, in his grace to us, came and he defined his relationship with us. But he didn't stand back and make demands of us simply. He made demands of us and then reached inside us and gave us the ability to obey him with joy and satisfaction. And even when we fail to do so, he has said he will pour mercy upon us. That's the good news of the new covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you are long-suffering and patient, that you kept your promises for generations upon generations throughout the Old Testament, that you would bring the seed of Eve to crush the head of Satan. And even through the failures of your people, generation after generation, you preserved a remnant that you might keep your promise and preserve the seed that would come from Eve, that would come from the Lion of Judah, from the line of David. And he would come and be born and dwell among us, that you might rescue us from our sins and save us and bring us into the glorious, better promises of this new covenant. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us with confidence that because of this reality of what Christ has accomplished, that we can come boldly before you and approach you with confidence so that we can do what we reflected on earlier in the service and, and come being able to freely confess our sins to you, knowing that we will see mercy and forgiveness. Father, we are thankful that you have written the law in our minds and on our hearts. And I pray even right now that you would be at work in us by your spirit, helping us to put to death the sins of the flesh. Fill us with joy and a desire to live for your glory and to obey your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.